Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the directors, the writers, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, uh, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, composers, and... Today we get an author. We don't get authors too often, but when we do, it's always a joy. But we talk to them all. And uh, we're going to do some talking today at the midpoint of the show with Edward Savio, the author of League of Auld. Uh, It is book three in the Battle for Forever series, the young adult series. uh, And the audio book is now out. So Edward's going to join us at the midpoint of the show. We're going to talk about Battle for Forever series and this new ins- this latest installment in the literary franchise. But first, I'm going to introduce you to a filmmaker that I was familiar with some of his work before, uh, primarily as an actor. I was not familiar with his work as a writer or a director, but I now am, and I can't wait to see what else he brings us. Uh, Paul Collette, The Haunting of Hell Hole Mine. This is a fun film. It's dark. It's a horror film. It mixes in the supernatural with the history of, you know, gold fever in California. Um... And it's a lot, it's just fun to watch. And what I really appreciate with The Haunting of Hell Hole Mine is that Paul, he co-directs it with Tammy Massa. He co-wrote it with Robbie Trujillo. And his cast is amazing. Tom Sizemore in one of his final roles. Sally Kirkland. And who doesn't love seeing Sally? And Sally is such a champion of independent film and indie filmmakers. And she's got a really fun part as a psychiatrist in this one. Um, But it's basically the story of an abandoned gold mine. There's a supernatural being there that was conjured by a Native American shaman years ago to defend their tribe. And What's cool about this supernatural being is that it can appear in the flesh and poses anyone. And now Luke, who is played by Paul. Yes, he also is one of the co-stars in the film, too. Uh, his an- one of uh, his old West ancestors, are tra- they have trapped it in the mine. But it has haunted the descendants ever since. And it causes people to go insane. Now, Luke's niece, Pony, has come down with the family curse. She's now going insane, which is where Sally Kirkland's character as Dr. Parker comes in. She is her psychiatrist. Um, But Luke believes that with proper uh, psychiatric treatment, she can live a normal life, but he needs to make money for costly medication and treatments. So he teams up with his bestie, Roscoe, played by Tom Sizemore, Uh, and ventures out to the deserted mine to try his luck at finding gold. But now, what does he find? Do we find gold? 
or do we find haunting and insanity? There's a reason it is hellhole mine. Um, the beauty of this production, I wish that, and you'll hear me talk with Paul about this, I wish he had had more money for his budget because all of the nuts and bolts for a really top-notch um, thriller or horror thriller are here. Um, he's got an incredible cinematographer, Jan Frame, who, as a DP, he also pulls his own focus. Tammy Massa also is the editor on this. And, you know, here, the cast is wonderful. There's Tom, there's Paul, uh, Sally, uh, Revel Carpenter, Tori Lane Ross. Just outstanding. Um, but one of the big things with this film that I really love is the mine itself, which Paul designed and built from scratch on a 40, 40 by 70 feet, created tunnels, created passages, really amazing job. Uh, they shot the film in Salinas on Tammy owns a ranch. They shot it on her property, built the entire interior of the mine. And the, there's an exterior for the mine shaft entry. That was designed and built from scratch elsewhere with a rock formation that looked like it would work. And it does. Um, such ingenuity and stick to to bring this film together. And something about Paul's direction and the way he has written the script also, he has a philosophy that the actor's job is to convey the character's point of view and leave the directing to the director. And with The Haunting of Hellhole Mine, you really see that happen. And you see the characters as they have to face the consequ consequences of drastic actions uh, and decisions, none more so than Luke and Roscoe. This is an outstanding performance from Tom Sizemore. He has an incredible character arc. Um, I was so impressed uh, with his work here. I can't tell you. Uh, but without any further ado, I'm going to let you take a listen to my exclusive interview with Paul Collette as we talk about... Oh, and by the way, as you'll hear, Paul also has Parkinson's. You will never know it when you watch the film. But that, as you'll hear him talk about, will influence his future projects uh, in their themes and where he goes with them in his writing and storytelling. So take a listen to Paul Collette talking The Haunting of Hill Hole Mine. It's Paul Collette. Yeah, how are you? How are uh, you doing? I am fine, Paul. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. No problem. I'm delighted. I was so impressed with the haunting of Hellhole Mine. Well, well, thank you. I think you did a wonderful job with it. I wish you had had a lot more money to spend on it. Quite yeah. honestly. Yeah. Because you've got all the nuts and bolts there that this could be could be a real contender as a thriller. A horror yeah. thriller. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but I see where you did put your money, and it was well worth it. Uh, well, some some of the some of those effects are just spectacular. 
Yeah, I I particularly enjoy the the fire thing at the um, at the end with um the tink in the fire. It took a lot of figuring, and I kind of had to design it myself. But yeah, it uh, it worked out pretty good. In the opening, the old miners, uh, you know, the yeah. ancient really just such great. I I love the story. First thing I emailed Jeff and Clint both, and I told them, I said, my God, all the nuts and bolts are here. I wish somebody would have given him more money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, it's a struggle with this end because I, I pretty much have to fund my films myself. I tried for years to find investors, and it just it never worked out. Yeah. So I became, well, I'm going to have to gather money myself and do the best I can with what I've got, you know? Well, I think you did a terrific job with Thank it, you. especially really with it. especially with as many hats as you're wearing, Paul. <laughs> co-writer, co-director, production designer, acting, and yeah. you're in about what 65, 70 percent of the scenes. Yeah, about about sixty percent. Yeah, that's not easy wearing all of these hats and trying to keep them all straight in your head. Yeah, no. <laughs> But this is such a fun story at its heart. It's yeah. interesting because of the history and the legend and lore that you bring in. And you tap yeah. into everybody's obsession with finding gold, striking it rich. Everybody yeah. wants to do that. I'm sure you would like to do that so you could fund your films as much as you want. Yeah. <laughs> Where did the idea for this story originate? Well, I used to live in the Bay Area, but I kind of worked in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So I had to drive back and forth every weekend to, you know, come back to my family. And one weekend when I was driving over um, the grapevine, I started thinking about gold mining and how pointless, it, you know, how, how few really made it. You know, most of them just wasted their life away and their money. And the first thought was, what if what if you dug so deep that you reached hell kind of thing? And then that conjured some ideas, and I got to a point where I had to pull over and start writing it down. And um, a couple hours later, I, I had the basics of the whole script there. Um, the Satink idea came about a couple of years ago, and that really revolutionized the whole idea. Mm -hmm. Because that became, yeah, that's really what this is about. It, it's not about getting gold or failing. It's not about demons or monsters. It's about, um, it's about drastic decisions and the consequences of those. And, and yeah, I mean, I really... Um, I, I like especially how it intertwines all these different people's lives. You know, they all sort of intersect in this story, from from Martin, the other gold miners, to Satinka, to Luke, and to Roscoe. I mean, everybody interconnects, intertwines in this story, and are all engaged in it in a in a similar way. Mm hmm. Yeah, you would not expect so many essentially disparate individuals to all be integrated and drawn together by this yeah. one event, so to speak. Yeah, 
Yeah. It's really interesting the way that you crafted that and melded all of these characters as they meet up, as they go through their lives. And yeah. so much of what makes this work is also your casting, Paul. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. Uh, yeah. How did you oh. luck out with this cast? I, I'm very particular about casting. Mm -hmm. So besides putting up the breakdown, I wrote a monologue. I don't want this to sound raggy, but I, I, I've rewritten this script, I mean, dozens and dozens of times. It's, it's well over 12 years old. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I set up the auditions, instead of having somebody read half of the page, I wrote monologues for each of the characters. Wow. And so the actor was to give a video monologue of the character, and that would tell me everything I need to know as far as what kind of person they were going to be like, um, you know, as an actor, a little bit how they were. I interviewed all of them as well. Um, it was online, but interviewed them as well, talked to them, and then we rehearsed as well. So. I want to make sure they were someone who really, really wanted to do this story, this story, um, who really wanted to be involved. And, um, yeah, and they, they were just, they were all so great people, just great actresses and actors to work with. Um, I think being able to do, doing it in Salinas, I mean, it had its disadvantages because I had to put everybody up in motels, but it kind of brought us together a little bit more because we were isolated in that regard. And um, I mean, yeah, my craft was wonderful. My crew was just fantastic. Best crew I've ever had. Well, Emmy was wonderful. She was my, she knew how to stand behind the camera when I was in front of it and tell me what, you know, where I was off and stuff so I could correct it and things. And oh. just, yeah, I just had great people to work with. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, how how does actor Paul do with director Paul? So that's when Tammy stepped in as director when you were playing actor Paul. Yes. Um, my, my opinion as an actor is your job as an actor is to be uh, uh, subjective. Mm -hmm. Right. Everything is your actor's point of your character's point of view. It doesn't have to do with the full story. It doesn't matter what looks good or bad. That's the director's job. Then the director is objective, and he comes in and says, "No, this is a little off, or or you looked a little fat in the scene, or or this came out weird and stuff." And then you make those corrections. So the fact that Tammy, I've known her for a long time, and she knows my directing and stuff, and so. She could come to me and, uh, you know, let me know where I was off, and, and other actors, too, if she was directing that scene, so it was great. But, um, but I had that net, you know. I didn't have to worry about it or, or try to worry about it in my head, you know, while I'm trying to act. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Tammy was also editing. Tammy was involved in editing. I did I did most of the editing. Um but, uh, yeah, Tammy was, uh, did the first round and stuff, and then I did the others and stuff. Took a little longer than I wanted, because you don't always have all the shots you want, so you have to sort of tweak scenes to match what you have to work with. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, yeah. 
You know, did you wait until you had all the footage assembled before you started with the editing? Or was Tammy kind of putting together an initial rough cut as filming was progressing? No, she, we waited till we finished filming and then, um, and then Tammy did the rough cut. How long was the editing process on this one before we got the effects put in there? Yeah, the editing sort of had some challenges because we had COVID. I had my day job. Um, and then in the middle of there, I had another film project that needed to get filmed. So I kind of had to put things on hold and focus on that. That holiday boyfriend, hoping to have that coming out this um, this fall. Um, and then... So, yeah, it was frustrating because I'd have to pause on the editing and come back to it a couple months later. Like, I know I want to get this done, but I want to get it done as well as I can manage. So uh, the effects were were kind of, most of them were at the end, but some of them were before we picture locked because I kind of needed to see how the effect was going to look before sure. I could, you know, finish ending that scene kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would hate to have seen you get to the end, have it all done, and then say, this really does not look good. Yes, and that was really, that was really key. That was part of why I was a little more willing to take time, because it was like, I don't, you know, I don't have a full-time dedicated person, so I'd rather have something I'm happy with than, you know, look at it two years later and go, oh, I wish I'd done this, oh, I wish I'd done that. Yeah, that 2020 hindsight will get you every time, Paul. Yeah, yeah, it will. <laughs> now, you also did the production design, and this yeah. is where I really have to commend what you did for design in terms of the mine, the tunnels, and your cinematographer, Jan. I, I gotta oh, my gosh, yes. I got to tell you, I'm really impressed with the camera work because... You have that those the mine constructed very narrowly. Yeah. It's not very deep. It's narrow. Not a lot of uh, room to navigate in terms of lighting or camera. Yeah. And yet Jan delivers some really nice camera work with dutching, with different angles, varying it up. Yeah. So we get a greater sense of the vastness of the tunnels in this mine very yeah, impressive that's great yeah yeah he he's fantastic um he's like my go-to person uh i was involved with him on a on a project in thailand and um when i was ready to do hellhole i was like i need to because he helped me with um we had some pickup work to do on a film and i was kind of directing the pickup work and we really synced well and on hellhole I would, before I started telling him how I wanted the, you know, the shot framed and stuff, I'd be setting things up and then I'd come over to him and he'd already have it framed and I'd be like, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's perfect. Just, yeah. So the great thing is he knows how to, he knows how to set it up already. You know, he knows what to do. He can read my mind and know what I'm looking for. And of course he just, great at the cinematography and he pulls his own focus too which is 
Wow. That's old yeah, school. He yeah, he doesn't like to have one because uh, he knows what he needs. So. Yeah, I was very, very impressed with that. Number one, with the design and the textures that you give us of the mine itself. Yeah, yeah. You didn't make I, this um, flat. You didn't make it um, look wide so that we've got mining little tram cars that are coming in and out on tracks. You right. really went very, very old school to mythology, Native Americans, and the old, old West. And it really works so well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad. I I started working on the mind um, design at least nine months before, and then eventually created a model um, so that um, when we were ready to actually construct it, it would go faster because I knew exactly how wide this area should be and that one. And I designed out where in on the set each of the scenes would be. Of course, that varied a little bit because we had some rain issues. But um, yeah, yeah, it was um, it was exciting to build because there wasn't a lot of time to get it built in. But uh, but it was, it was cool to feel it come together. And I wanted that detail. I didn't want it to feel well fake, obviously. Uh, you know, I wanted it to have a personality of its own, kind of. Mm -hmm. And it definitely does. And again, I think it's because of the texture that you give it and the different looks. You know, we've got yeah. dirt. We've got partially, it's dirt, dirt. We've got the black that's kind of speckled to give you that idea that, okay, maybe there is something. It's not pyrite, but maybe there is actually some gold underneath, you know, right. buried in the rock. Um, and the light picks up beautifully on that because the camera light, just like a headlamp, is so focused on particular spots. But by doing that, you really give us a sense that this is old, it was it was dug out by hand, maybe some dynamite was thrown in there along the way, yeah. but really well done. How big was, did that set end up being for just the mine? Um, so we we built it on a ranch site that was actually close to Tammy's house. We built it on her property out essentially in the yard, which seemed phenomenal. Um, I think the square footage space of it was about 40 feet by 70 feet, 65, something like that. That's and not so small. Wind it around. No, it's really not a lot of space at all. Yeah, but I mean, you know, when you're putting it up and putting all the pieces together, man, it uh, it does feel like quite a bit. Now, the opening. Where did you shoot? Like the mine opening, because yes. I mean that it's just so perfect. Yeah, it's um, it worked out really well. My daughter actually, when she saw the footage of the of the film. She thought that was that it was a mine that it went into that hillside. I was like, no, no, we built we built that on the outside of a hill on another property, you know, another like thirty miles away um, that we had access to. And yeah, we just built the front there, and then tried to match the boards and match the look as much as we could to the set we'd already built. 
That looks so authentic. I truly, I'm with your daughter. I truly thought that you found that somewhere in somewhere in the hills. Wow. Years ago, I'd investigated the shooting in, a, in an actual mine and stuff, but they're 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 terrible locations, you know. They're they're on the verge of falling apart. They're very wet, and they're never in a good location. They're always far away. Mm-hmm. And so it made sense. Well, I want to I want a set where I can, you know poke a hole in the wall to put a camera if I need to and then patch it up and I wouldn't be able to do that on a real set you know on a real mine in a real mine you'd also have to worry about bringing in massive amounts of cable and generators oh yeah to get electricity in there yeah I know a filmmaker that actually shot in underground caves back east and and went deep into the caves but the biggest part of the budget went for generators trucks and cable dragging yeah. cable in because yeah, oh he, my gosh yes he so didn't many, so, so many cables so long so many yards of cable yeah because it wasn't even for the the kind of shoot and because there were multiple people involved in the ensemble right. cast you couldn't go in with battery uh, battery operated uh lighting for your cameras or anything yeah. You it you had to bring in lights, so yeah, so I think you did an amazing job building the mine set, or quote unquote sets, plural. Thank you. And yeah. the opening to the mine that just blows my mind, blows my mind, Paul. That you <laughs> built that, it looks that authentic cool. as an opening. But this is the benefit, you know, you can do fun things like this when you have somebody that has a ranch. So you can build a 40 by 70 mine on it and things like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, Tammy was the one who had access to all this property and it was great that we were able to get on it and be able to see it ahead of time too so I could plan down and say, okay, I think this will work. So yeah, I was, uh, yeah. How much rehearsal time did you and your cast have uh, to get into character and to really find those those beats? Because I particularly love the dynamic between you and Tom Sizemore. You bring yeah. this great innocence and purity to Luke. And then Sizemore, I love the arc that he has as Roscoe, because he starts out very protective, caring uh, of Luke, very yeah. familial. But as we as we get to the mine, Roscoe changes a bit. Yeah, gold fever. Yeah. And but it's yeah. watching the two of you, in particular, is really a testament. And I'm curious about the rehearsal time that you had for this to develop especially the two of you, for the kind of relationship that Luke and Roscoe have? Well, um, the interesting thing is uh, me and Tom, I think, only got a chance to rehearse once. But when I originally um, originally had trouble getting a hold of him, but I uh, pressured an acquaintance we both had to try again. We got a hold of him, 
And once he got the script, he was all on board. He was like, this is fantastic. I actually have, you know, a, a character to play and stuff going on. You know, so many times a lot of the roles that he gets just don't have any meat to them. Right. And so he was really excited about doing it. Um, yeah, I wish we'd do Well, we rehearsed once online and it felt so natural. He was already, he already had his lines down and it felt like, yeah, we already have kind of that connection. We know where to go with this and stuff. So um, the other actors I rehearsed with more, but Tom not as much because, you know, he's a busy guy. I didn't want to take up too much time. But the fact that we synced really well the first time we rehearsed online really is what made me comfortable. Like, okay, good, this is going to, this is going to go the way I'd like it to. Mm -hmm. I never would have believed that you only, you know, rehearsed once and that was online because yeah. there really is, you feel the relationship between the two of them. I think part of it too was we had quite a bit of conversation, just kind of getting to know each other in a more personal sense and stuff, help us relax and sort of, because that's the thing, you know, if you're supposed to be friends in a film, but you're strangers in real life, sometimes that can bleed into the film and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was nice that we were able to sort of get acquainted that way and stuff so that we were relaxed with each other. Mm -hmm. I'm curious because you've got quite a bit of, of acting under your belt. So yeah. do you consider yourself to be an actor's director? Very much. Um, I, I definitely, like, that's why I love working with Jan because I don't, I don't really want to worry about the camera. I want to make sure the camera's capturing the scene that I want, but I want to focus on the actors and what I want out of them. Um, I will talk to the actors before the scene, talk about storyline, uh, pre-scening, you know, what happened just before this scene, how do you feel about them and stuff, and then we'll shoot the scene. So the actors, it's not just, you know, say your line and then we'll shoot it. I want them to get to the place they're supposed to be, you know, mentally for that scene. And that's when, that, I mean, that's when it's magical for me because then I'm capturing what's really going on for them in the imaginary circumstance. Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself moving more into the director writing and, and directing aspect of filmmaking? Yeah. Um, I've, um, I have Parkinson's and, um, it's beginning to make me a little more camera shy as an actor as well. But um, it's, it's, it is quite difficult to try and juggle the acting and directing at the same time. I'm probably going to lean more into directing and writing and stuff. Well, I have to say, that makes this whole thing, knowing that, that makes your performance and everything else even more impactful. Oh, thank you. I never would have suspected in a million years based on seeing you on camera. And I also saw you in Shark Island. Oh, cool. I never would have known, Paul. Well, that's good. It's, uh, you know, I, yeah, well, I do my best to hide it, but. <laughs> I don't even think you need, you don't even need to. It doesn't matter, right? 
even if they notice it, it doesn't matter. As long as you're doing and it, what you want and achieving what you want in terms of your storytelling, that's what matters. Yeah. If you're happy with the work that you're putting out and others are happy, you know, like it and at least appreciate it, that's, yeah. that's all that should matter. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Do you see yourself working on any scripts that may eventually or start incorporating some of your own trepidation or concerns about having Parkinson's, living with Parkinson's? Do you see yourself incorporating that into any future works? Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of things have, I'll go back and look at some of my scripts and I'll definitely see like things I was going through kind of thing, you know, a good, I think good writing is coming from a personal place that you're sort of processing through and stuff. Um, it definitely is influencing my writing already a little bit. Um, it's kind of, I don't know. I mean, I was always, always kind of felt like an underdog anyway. So it just sort of emphasizes that root for the underdog kind of mentality. That sometimes it's just a matter of putting forth as much effort as you can. And sometimes you can achieve a lot more than you think you could. You know, whether it's with Parkinson's or with any other disability or, or just, you know, insecurities or daily life, you know, the, the regular things we struggle with. And that was Paul Collette talking about the haunting of Hellhole Mine. Now, there's still a little bit more of Paul's interview, but it talks about his next film. We talk about his next film, Holiday Boyfriend, that's coming out this fall. Uh, but you'll be able to hear this entire interview, including tidbits on Hol Holiday Boyfriend, uh, in which some of his cast, including Sally Kirkland, uh, some of his cast from Haunting of Hellhole Mine, is also seen in Holiday Boyfriend. Um, all of this will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net. It'll be up on the website probably by Wednesday because Paul was also kind enough to send me some behind-the-scenes interviews with Sally and with Tom Sizemore, as well as... A building of the mine video that he did uh, that I want all of you to see as a companion to the interview and I'll really show you the lengths that he went to as a self-financed independent filmmaker to make this film the haunting of hellhole mine is out digitally now see it see it see it it's a lot of fun there are some good scares there's some really nice visual effects in there uh, and, of course, wonderful performance from Tom Sizemore, as well as Sally Kirkland and Paul Collette. So, the in interview in its entirety will be up on the website, BehindTheLensOnline.net, later this week. And I'm thinking Wednesday, realistically, but along with some great videos that you'll be able to take a look at as well. So... Now we're going to switch gears. We're switching gears here and welcoming the wonderfully prolific writer, Edward Savio. Hi, Edward. 
Hey, how are you, Debbie? How are you? I'm very excited to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for calling in. Uh, yeah, well, this is interesting because we're using, like, technology from two centuries ago to talk about new technology and, and stuff now. But it's very interesting because, I don't know, I hope I sound okay. You I'm sa- actually calling. You sound great. Sound okay. Great. I got my big mic here over in the studio, so I'm calling through my through my sound system that uh, I use for audiobooks. I have a new book coming out that I actually did the audiobook on. Um, so we try to sound good. Well, I think you sound wonderful. <laughs> and Pam isn't making ugly faces. She's nodding her head. Yes, you do. Otherwise, she'd be making ugly faces at me. Um, <laughs> oh, good. 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 <laughs> so we don't have ugly faces from Pam happening in studio here. Well, I have to say, I'm going to tell you up front, um, I got the link. I got the download that you sent me for the book uh, yep. in, you know, online reading form. Uh, I also got the audio book link. Unfortunately, by the time I got them and my schedule was so jammed, I didn't have 12 hours to listen to the whole book or time to Uh, read 368 pages all at one time because I'm one of these obsessive people that when I start reading a book, I read it it all at one time. I I did start reading this incredible (laughs) book, The League of of Auld. and I got through chapter two. I also listened to part of it because this is Audiobook Appreciation Month. And you now have the Battle for Forever book number three, The League of Auld, is now on audiobook. So I wanted to at least experience a few chapters of what it sounded like with Raymond Porter doing the reading. Oh, Ray Porter. Yeah, Ray's amazing. He I is. I have actually heard bits and pieces of audiobooks he's done before. He's great. And I was curious because of the fact Will Wheaton uh, narrated your, read your prior two books in the series, yep, the first two books. Ancient Among Us yep. and Alexander X. And I know yep. how Will sounds when he's reading. I know his voice. It's in my head. So I was curious um, how Ray was going to sound. And I have to say, I love what I've listened to so far, and of course now I'm hooked, so I have to finish listening. Uh, I had a couple of people do that where they're like, okay, thank you for ruining my evening. And I'm like, listen, uh, other writers, other narrators have done this for me as well. It, it was very interesting. These are my two favorite narrators. And, you know, to get to work with both of them, and I'm not just saying that, like really, literally, if you look at my, my library, um, these are the people that are in my library the most for male narrators. And, um, it was, it was fantastic. I was, I was, uh, a bum that, that Will couldn't continue on with because of all the scheduling issues, but I was so grateful that Ray came on board and is going to finish out the series with, with us with book three and book four, because I, I just, he just brings a, his own take. And it takes a moment, I think, if people have gone from, you know, Will uh, into Ray's version. Uh, it takes them a moment. But once you get into it, it's like, wow, okay. 
these are professionals and I'm always impressed at how well they do. And because I started out as a screenwriter, I'm a little bit more used to hearing other people say my words than maybe some mm-hmm. authors are. Mm-hmm. And it might be jarring for some authors. But for me... Um, it's part and I, parcel. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. And people people always say to me, they're always like, do you hear Will Wheaton or Ray Porter in your head when you're writing? And I'm like, no. I love them, <laughs> but I hear the characters. And... Um, but I do love listening to them. And as a matter of fact, unlike a lot of authors, I also get uh, final pacing edit on the audiobooks. Nice. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great because as a person who comes from movies and television and that kind of world, there, the slightest little pause or break can make a difference. Mm-hmm. you know, in how something is uh, portrayed. Absolutely. And it's great to have these people to work with. Ab- yeah. And, you know, and with Will especially, he's got acting chops behind him. So he knows yep. if he's doing live action acting, he knows as an actor where you need a pause, where you might not need a pause. But in that case, you've got a director. So, you know, here, this is nice that you do get that final, that pacing edit. So, because you essentially are the director of your words when you're writing a book. Yeah, and they give me some, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's not like you're changing everything, but there is that place where people have to take a breath. They're, they're real human beings, and sometimes they need to take a breath in a place where there shouldn't be a pause or shouldn't be a comma, and you can, you can fix that, and you can, you can kind of do that. But it's the raw material that they've given you could just play that back and people would be blown away. We're getting nitpicky when we go in and change little things here and there. <laughs> now I have to ask my yeah. pal, Lisa Scottolini, who's got 35 books out and her latest one. And she's now all of hers are being put on audio and her latest one. Uh, I'm going to have to ask her, does she get pacing edit? Does she get to have that? Most people don't. I don't think, but, but you got to ask them. I'm well, curious. That's why I'm going to ask Lisa if she gets that. And if not, now that that will be planted in her head, I know that she will now ask for it in the future. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, this is, and so this is the one thing. Yes, pacing at it. However, no on getting the author in the booth or the studio with yeah. the uh, voice actor. Absolutely not. That is a no. Yeah. You, you should absolutely, you know, Yes, later listening, tweaking something, but going, oh, you know, that's not how I would say that. No. And especially since what's so amazing about them, both Will and Ray is, and I know this because I've just recorded The Velvet Sledgehammer, which is uh, more of an adult mainstream kind of not safe for workbook that's coming out this summer. Um, You have to the amount of time it takes to get, say, one hour of audio for a professional, they're usually like two hours. Yep. For me, <laughs> it took like six hours to get one hour <laughs> because of going over and making mistakes and tripping over my words and, and all of those things. But, um, but it, it is amazing to hear how they take these things and do them in one take wow. so many times. 
Wow. Well, I know I am now hooked um, uh, because I had not read Battle for Forever, Alexander X, uh, Battle for Forever, and I had not read Ancient Among Us. So I'm starting with book three, and I'm already, just with the first two chapters, so invested that when I finish book three, I have to go back to book one and two. It's, it's going to be an interesting take because you're going to come at it from a different angle. Um, and, it, and it is a through line, but it also does make sense um, in some ways. Uh, for instance, like from the start of the book series to where you are at the end of book three, mm-hmm. it, is, it is from a Saturday to a Friday. Okay. So from one Saturday to the next. So three books. The first couple of minutes in the book is like a Wednesday before the Saturday, but the action takes place. 90% of the first book starts on a Saturday and ends on a Sunday. And then the second book is like Sunday to Wednesday. And the third book is Wednesday to Friday. And um, I wanted it to be so visceral. And at times, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things where you want to go, and it's a good tool to use for writers. What with one thing or another, three years pass. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you go from one scene to three weeks later, three years later, whatever. But in this series, because it is about um, this journey and this struggle, there are times when I'm literally fighting for every mile for my characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and while well, putting some funny stuff in there. Well, yeah, already in book three, you've got a bunch of great one-liners and funny stuff in there. Uh, In just these first couple chapters that I've already read. Uh, But I am just so enthralled with your protagonist, with our hero, Alexander Grant. And the whole idea of this, he's 1,500 years old. He's graduated high school 17 times. I am so sorry for your character that he had to go to high school 17 times. Edward. I feel his pain. Seriously. Everybody feels it. He has just bought his 651st house. It's hard enough buying one. He's on 651. Um, He is life personified 10 times or 100 times over and I find that so fascinating with all of his skills things he's learned in school uh, and along the way um, he's an action hero but he's smart and you know he's got Phoebe along for the ride this time and uh, Renica who is also not young Shall we say? No, no. I love, <laughs> I love my, you know, one of the things that, you know, so I come from, uh, as a screenwriter, you know, I, I write action and adventure, but I'm really a comedy writer in, in some ways. I mean, that's how I, I didn't want to write straight comedy, but that's what I do. I write comedy and then I come back to the real world and I try not to write a comedy but I try to look at what is funny about every situation Mm -hmm. and my favorite things about these female characters are 
I wanted to start them out in some ways, all of these characters in a way, and, and give the audience that they're a trope, that they're, that they're the, the, the person, the sidekick, whatever, and, or the love interest, but then twist it and bring them much more depth because I love banter between men and women, men and men, women and women, between two people, whether it's in a relationship of friends or lovers or whatever, I love that kind of banter. And they're, they're funny. They're fun characters because they just don't, um, the older ones, especially the ones who are the eternal, the Amarantos who age one day for every hundred days, they just don't have a lot of, um, filters in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also what you talked about with all the things that they learned, they're not the Da Vinci's. They're not the people that have created all of the great things in life, but they're masters of what have been created. Mm-hmm. And this was a, a love letter to my then teenage kids who, uh, you know, I wanted them to understand, like, if you just did something really well, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm a, a very good writer is because this is what I've done for mm-hmm. my entire life. And sure, I started out with some talent, but um, if I go back and look at my first writing, it would be like, okay, cringe. It's got something there, but it's not where I am. Right. And it's not where I was when I was in my mid-20s or even in mid-30s. Every single time you tend, you tend to reinvent yourself and rebuild what is below the foundation on on top of the foundation that you've built over all the years and that's what i wanted to say with these characters that you know they're not brilliant they're just masterful they have learned they have learned with the passage of time Uh, i think you've got one really fun the banter back and forth uh in the plane sequence here now in book three and you've got Alexander, Phoebe, and Renica, and administering, Renica's administering first aid, and there are snide comments, oh, you're a doctor now? And it's just, <laughs> it's like one thing after another, oh, you can fly a plane now? Um, oh, yeah. And you can just hear the snark when you read it on the page, and it's funny. Yeah, well, sure, because it's like, of course. I mean, you have three planes. He's got 600, and, you know, this is the... He leaves his 651st house. I mean, you know, he, you know, in the first book, uh, without giving away too much, but, you know, he's the one that saved Paul Revere's home, you know, and, you know, from demolition, you know, and, and there's a whole story behind that and why he did it and all that. But they've, and, and what's also been fun is these characters have been near or in some of history. Mm-hmm. in the past and uh this book has gone you know number one but it also was number one in some individual categories for a lot longer than it was number one overall and it was like number one number two in the top 10 of time travel there is no time travel in this book but it was it was actually in two, in 2020 i think it was uh, uh the first book was like out of it was like they, were, they did a uh amazon and audible did a thing about time travel books and it was one of the ones that you know best time travel books of the last decade and again no time travel but because these characters 
the lead character is 1,500 years old, he can tell us a story from 200 or 300 mm-hmm. or 400 years ago. Well, and in book and three, you even have already, within the first couple chapters, um, he's recalling back to a, a Chinese dynasty. Yep. Right. Uh, centuries ago. It, yeah, exactly. His dealing with the Opium War, which, you know, again, he was he was on the wrong side, and he realizes now he was on the wrong side of that. And that, uh, that, I think, I'm getting the sense just from what I've already read and what you're saying, that he, he may have been on the wrong side, but you learn, he's learned from his mistakes as well. Right. He's learned from his life lessons. He, he has, and I think that's the most interesting thing, which is this is a dichotomy between someone who is, whose frontal lobe is not developed because he's physically and mentally sort of and emotionally a 16, 17-year-old um, kid, mm-hmm. but has this incredible amount of knowledge and experience that it has changed part of that. So on one hand, so on the one hand, he can sound like an older character. So I, as a as a not a 16-year-old, can can go. Here's some wisdom mm-hmm. that I've learned since I was 16, but then. Having teenagers, also remembering and having written things to myself, like in journals from when I was younger, I understand what I was thinking at the time. So I can take those two things, the more wisdom, hopefully, based (laughs) present day person, maybe, and putting that on top of my younger self, or at least my younger mindset that, you know, this character isn't me, but at least my younger mindset. And so I thought that was really fun as a writer to be able to do that. Well, now talk to me about, cause we have two villains that yes. we are pursuing and trying to yes. actually trying to escape um, from throughout the series, Peter Kroll and Elam Kai. What was the, origin for these two villains and what makes them so deadly to Alexander I think they are the two I think they are the two um, types of villains that would be in this world set so this is sci-fi but really there's only one device which is that they age differently Mm -hmm. they're not immortal they can die but they age differently So the world is our world except for this. But if you were to have these younger characters, Renica, and, you know, who's in, you know, maybe looks like she's 20-ish, so she's about 2,000 years old, and Alexander Grant, who's around 1,500, who looks around 16, 17, um, they have never been famous in the past. You know what I mean? They Mm -hmm. have not been famous people. Alam Kai, Alexander's father, other people that are other characters that come in and out of this book um, in their 30s or looking like they're in their 30s or 40s have been some of the most famous people in history. And so for Alam Kai, a 4,500-year-old, imagine someone who's been a king, a general, um, a warrior, a leader, and been at the highest, without giving away who he's been, mm-hmm. without, you know, he is one of the greatest, 
you know, military minds, leaders ever. And imagine now you could pretend in, up until the 1800s uh, that you got older and died. And then you could pretend to be someone else. Well, he can't do that anymore. We have with DNA, fingerprints, um, retina scanning, facial recognition, mm-hmm. photographs, you know, just just photographs. We can't become famous and then in 100 years look exactly the same and be famous again. Right. So what would these people do? What would Alam Kai do? What would that generation do? So that's Alam Kai, this 4,500-year-old character. Now, the Peter Kroll character is based on a couple of maybe three or four billionaires who are in real life, want to live forever, and think they can live forever. And people already, these billionaires, already control a lot of our world. And imagine if a billionaire didn't die, if they didn't if nothing got passed on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. So this character wants the secret that these other characters have. Now, it's not a drug. It's not, it is something in their DNA, but he figures that he's going to be able to unlock this. So there's the characters that have this, the 4,500-year-old and those generation, mm-hmm. that are a danger to our world. And then there's this billionaire who is also a danger to our world because the one thing that the 15, you know, even Alexander, who's lived as long as he has, or even Alam Kai, as dangerous as he is, um, he's grown up with this, right. this power. And so he at least understands the, the, the relationship. But it's like, but Peter Cole is like a person who wins a lottery. They don't, uh. they, they got money too quickly and they don't know how to control it. And so if Peter Cole gets this power, He's not he's going to be a 50 year old person who now all of a sudden who can live forever and has amassed all this, but doesn't have the responsibility that would come with it. That Mm -hmm. he would have learned over growing up hundreds of years and Mm -hmm. seeing other things. And that is just like a person who wins the lottery. How many times do we see them with six months or a year later? You win four million dollars, you win 300 million and you're broke. Yeah. And 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 they also did a great, amazing study that there was this study where people who had, you know, uh, been in car accidents and lost, you know, functions of either, you know, paralyzed or Mm -hmm. lost some physical function, uh, and people who won lotteries, they, they went and studied, like, their writings beforehand and tried to see what type of people they were. What was their, what was their happiness set point Mm -hmm. before? And, of course, you know, a person in their accident, all this stuff. But after six months or a year, the happiness set point for each person, for the most part, went back to what it was before. If that person was sad, whether they had a million dollars or not, they would still be sad. If they had lost some use of their body and they were happy, they, generally speaking, they had bouts of depression or whatever. But in general, overall, they're happy. they were they were happy. Their baseline was happier than a person who won a million dollars, who had a baseline of being unhappy, which I found fascinating. That is fascinating. 
That yeah, is. Right? Now, a big qu- a question for you, Edward. With the journey that Alexander and everyone else has gone on over the course of three books and going into a fourth book, um, do you do any kind of research for <laughs> this yeah. for this series? I do a lot of research for this, and some of it is finding the interesting, weird piece of history that we think we know mm-hmm. and, tr- and trying to find the the true history um you know there's there's a simple example there's a great example in book two that uh, i i won't give away but um in book one there's a very simple example which is uh john adams our second you know (laughs) two two things actually uh george washington was not our first president of the united states he was the ninth president of the united states because we had uh, an entire other constitution, the Confederate, you know, the um, it that lasted about nine years. That was so bad that we had to rewrite our constitution in, in, and re-ratify it in nineteen in seventeen eighty seven. And so for eleven years or so, we had another constitution, and each year they had a president that was basically our House Speaker role, mm-hmm. but it was called the President of the United States. And so. Uh, George Washington, not our first president. He's our ninth. John Adams, not our second president. He's our tenth. John Adams says at one point, July 2nd shall be remembered throughout history as the day we have declared our independence. Well, no one remembers July 2nd. They passed that resolution. It was written up on the 2nd, Mm -hmm. but it finally had to be rewritten and was only was signed by everyone on July 2nd, but it was only signed by John Hancock originally on uh, July 4th. And then the one that's sitting in the archives wasn't signed uh, because they lost that one that was signed on July 4th. wasn't was redone and wasn't signed until August of that year. That's so right. We remember July 4th, but really it's July 2nd. So history is like how people remember stuff. And even though that's a little thing. There's lots of little things like that, yeah. and you don't. And I just had to run into them by by doing research. And that actually tickles me to death that you brought up that one, because being from Philadelphia, and yes. with those annual school trips back in the '60s, yep. you learn Philadelphia yep. history and you learn about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And yes, every it's July second, July second. And I just love that he said, will we be remembered in infamy or will we be remembered forever? Nope. No. So it tickles me that that you brought. That's the one. That's the example you brought up, because I know that factoid. <laughs> right. Uh, fans have contacted me and said, this can't be true. Mm. And then they'll say, oh, I looked this up and it is. Yeah. And and I was like, yeah, you know, um, I do it for. You know, uh, one of the things that I love is in the first book, there's a history test. And, you know, I mean, Alexander Grant would fail if he answered the questions correctly. You know, because he, he knows the history. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, there's all these things. Like, well, the whole thing about selling uh, Manhattan for $24 in trinkets. Well. Not quite. Uh, actually, not quite. Actually, what happened was is, the English gave about $60 worth at the time, uh, uh, present day probably a few thousand dollars worth of 
axe heads and weapons to a tribe that lived on Brooklyn, the equivalent of Brooklyn, and said, hey, go kill the people that live on Manhattan, and we'll give you some more stuff. And so they really didn't buy Manhattan. It was just taken over. It was kind of like saying, I'm not going to offer you money for a house. I'm going to go in and I'm going to kill the owners and then I'm going to live there. Yeah. So it's not as quite, not quite as nice a story. And, you know, U.S. history, just all history, it's not us. It's it's all since the beginning of time, since the beginning of recorded history. So I, this must be so exciting for you to go digging into all these factoids and all of these quirky little things that you can bring to life in your, in the books. Yeah. And, and so, so Debbie, what's really interesting is this is how I, you know, like Velvet Sledgehammer is interesting because it's about, uh, it's a very personal story and it's got a lot of my, my childhood in it. But the, the present day story is about uh, the creation of the WTO in 1993. Now I know that doesn't sound comedic, or interesting, but it, it is comedic and it is funny. And, but just like with Velvet, Sledgehammer, uh, with Alexander X, with the Battle for Forever series, for me, the story is the most important. I go through and I really write the story. And then I find where I need the research. Mm-hmm. So I don't do the research. Sometimes I'll I'll be doing research. In, my whole life is research, right? You know, you're just yes. looking at things. But, <laughs> but in general, specific research doesn't always happen until after I already know what the story is going to be because the story, the characters first, you know, and story is the thing. But characters first, story is the thing. And then what is the, what, what's the detail that goes on mm-hmm. the story? And, yeah, it is exciting and fun and interesting and um my favorite is when I hear from people and they go, I had to, I had to stop for a moment and Google this. And I go, yeah, go ahead, Google it. But isn't that the greatest thing in the world that you inspired somebody enough that made them actually go and do their own little bit of research? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love the conversations that we have about things. And I've had people send me other stuff and go, Hey, what about this? Or you should look into this. And, uh, like, for instance, in the third book here, as you'll get a little bit farther, there's a there's a thing I mentioned in the first two books called the the Halifax incident. And I I use it as this throwaway MacGuffin that just I talk about is this, like something bad happened. And you know a couple of things about it, that 2000 regular people died and about a dozen of the Amaranto slash uh, Eternal died. Um, but you don't know anything else about it. And. But. <laughs> This, this fan, a couple of fans did this. This one fan directly said, hey, are you ever going to answer what is the Halifax incident? <laughs> and, I, and I was like, you know, I was going to save it for like maybe the fourth book. And I went, all right, you know what? Fine. I, I, I'll put it in the third book. And, and I weaved that in because it, it just worked out really well. But it makes me look like I had seeded this thing in in book one and then and then used it again in book two as if I was going to actually use it in in the way that I used it. And it wasn't. But I look like I'm smart because of how <laughs> it came up. But, you know, that's and people go, yeah, you know, you seeded that in. I'm all, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew I was going to do that. 
Oh, my God. I love it. Oh, Edward, I could talk to you forever about your process and these books. But unfortunately, I'm out of time. You are out of time. Oh, uh, I ha- you have to come back on the show just so we can keep talking about about books and writing and your and your creative process. Um, the process is so much fun, Debbie. I would love to do that because honestly, my process is so bizarre because it's such a mix of movie pro- like my stuff from my screenwriting days and things I've learned as an author and then learned from other authors and you know. First, I studied other screenwriters and met with them and talked with them when I was younger. But it, it is this this jumble of two things meshed together, and it's kind of fun. And uh, everybody has their own process. But what I always tell people is, watch what other people do, model what they do. You don't don't copy what they do. Take little bits and pieces of it because everything I do, you're not gonna. It's not gonna work for you. Right. But listening to everything I do. You're, I'm not going to know, and you're not going to know what is the thing that's going to touch you and you're going to react to unless you hear it all. Right. Oh, Edward, this is so... I, I just absolutely love this. I love this conversation with you. But definitely, um, yes, should I should I email you to rebook you or book it through Annie? Yeah. Book me through Annie. That'd be great. Either way. I will do but, that. But, I'm, I'm looking at maybe July 10th. I'm, okay. I'm looking. Good. I'm looking at maybe July 10th and have you back, and we can, and by then I will have finished book three, and hopefully, <laughs> book one and two as well. Oh boy, you're gonna. It's gonna be a fun process because I think you know it's a. It really is an interesting thing how this story progressed, and I mean I knew this story from the beginning. Like I know how it ends, um, but you know there's little moments I didn't know in between, but. Um, it, it really has been a wonderful journey, and I loved doing this. So basically what you're telling me is, okay, you are the literary Taylor Sheridan who has always known how he's going to end Yellowstone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, I knew from day one how this ends. And, um, you know, and to know that is is freeing in some ways because, I just know the direction that I'm going in. I've often said this before, and we'll, and we'll talk about this another time, but um, I think everybody has one. I think everybody has two great, two bad uh, chapters, or, uh, uh, you know, has two or three chapters of a novel in them, good or bad. And it's usually the first two and the last one. And, you know, they could write it. They could write the last chapter of a book. They could write the first two chapters. It's the middle that's really hard. The middle's always um, the hard part. I've been hammering on, on a project myself, just a treatment, um, and it's the middle part. I, I know I got the characters, I got a beginning, I got an end. It's the middle part. It, it, Debbie, I, I find a treatment, like literally I have been paid to write treatment, and I finally have said to people going, listen, let me just write the script. <laughs> and I will, it's just going to be so much faster and so much easier <laughs> because telling you how I'm going to write it, because execution is so yeah. much of a story. And, you know, sometimes, like, especially in this book here, if you look at some things and I told you, well, these people did X, Y, and Z, you'd be like, okay, that's great. That sounds like this. 
But what doesn't sound like it is my voice and the comic twist on it. Now, some mm-hmm. other people do comic twists, but what I'm saying is my mix of stuff is going to be unique to me. Yeah. And you're not going to get that when I'm describing it to you in a treatment. And it's, it's always been really hard. Treatments have been super hard for me. Yeah, that's why I'm almost at the point, uh, because this is for a project of my own and that I'll be yep. pitching, and I have a couple a couple production companies that are interested, but I'm thinking about just finish the treatment for myself and then build it out as, as yep. a screenplay. Yeah, I mean, you know, build it out as a screenplay, set up a timeline or something, or at least even get, like, sometimes what I've done is I've done that treatment and then at least built out some of the screenplay so yeah. I know how it's supposed to sound. Yeah, and, the voice and is way, so important. The voice, the voice. is the what's vo- important. Yeah, the voice, especially in screenplays, right? Especially in screenplays because you, you know, one of the, one of the parts that I learned is that I used, to, I used to literally be, you know, um, as a screenwriter, I was very much like, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. He went to the store. He picked up the, you know, the milk. She opened the door for him. And, you know, I didn't get in, like, my screenplays now are much more uh, verbose. And mm-hmm. I get away with it because people know who I am and they go, right. okay, we know we're not going to get the standard, just no description here. But, um, but it was so much harder to envision what was in my head and try to describe what it was to the director. But when I started doing books, I was like, oh, this is a way I can do that. How can I take what I learned from screenwriting and bring it over to books? And how can I take what I've learned from writing novels and bring it back to, screen, to screenwriting in a modified way? Well, and we'll talk about this next time, but I have to say your yep. descriptive ability with what I've read so far, when we're, when Alex, when we're remembering back to the Chinese dynasties and the yep. minutiae describing the long pointed metal fingernail and remembering mm-hmm. how it was just sliding down the leg and the thigh, um, your yep. descriptives are fabulous. So I had whole pictures yeah. in my head as I was already reading and listening. Yeah, that's the fun part about being an author. I get to be the director, too. You sure do. Oh, Edward, this has been fabulous. I can't wait till we do this again. Oh, that sounds great, Debbie. This has been really wonderful. And everybody right now, they can actually get book three. They can get all the books. They're all available. The whole Battle for Forever, the first three books, they're all available now in audiobook form. And book form. That's correct. You can go and you can always check me out on all of the grams and things. Like I'm always at Edward Savio, at Edward Savio at Twitter, at Instagram, at TikTok. Uh, if you look up Edward Savio on Facebook, I'm there too. Uh, and it's a fun group of people that uh, has a couple, it's like five, 800 people or so that are really good fans. And we have good discussions about stuff. And the Battle for Forever website looks great. Uh, yeah. And you can also see my Edward Savio. Yes. I saw that too. But, yep. <laughs> Edward, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. Bye-bye. Take care now. And that was author 
and screenwriter, but we're talking author today, Edward Savio. And yes, we're going to have him back to keep talking about writing and this series of Battle for Forever. I can't wait to finish book three and go back to book one and two. And the, the narration Ray Porter does with book three is spectacular, but also I'm anxious to hear the difference between him narrating a book, reading a book, and Will Wheaton, who read the first two. But that is more than all the time we have for today. Next week, jam-packed Dances with Films filmmakers. We're, the whole show is live filmmakers, Dances with Films. Pam's going to be busy with the phone. Uh, but check out Haunting of Hellhole Mine. It's out now um, on digital. Really, it's, you know, it's a nice film. It's a, it's a well-done film, and you'll see what Paul and I talked about with the nuts and bolts. And as I said, the full interview will be up on BehindTheLensOnline.net probably by Wednesday, along with these wonderful videos, behind-the-scenes stuff that Paul sent to me that I can post uh, for all of you. So... Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.